Podcast 027, Review of Jeff Lawton's Permaculture Soil DVD. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. All right, we just got done watching Jeff Lawton, uh, uh, Permaculture Soils. I think that's the name of it, this permaculture soils. If we look at the side, yeah, the side. Permaculture soils. And uh, we got two videos that we can watch, and we watched this one first because I, I thought the cover looked cooler. It's got Jeff Lawton looking all durable there. Rugged, rugged, rugged. outdoorsy. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it was this funny thing. It's like I'm looking at the back of it, and there he is with his beard. I, I I thought that was kind of funny. His beard kind of came and went throughout the show. <laughs> it's back. It's gone. It's back. It's gone. Not, you know, I, I probably shouldn't say anything about that because that's just that's just petty stupidness. Um, well, it's something you notice in a movie, and it might be part, you know. Anyway, um, the other thing to notice about this is the whole thing had subtitles in case his accent was <laughs> too difficult to decipher. Or maybe, you know, I, it wasn't something we selected, a subtitle or anything. There was a couple times you used the word inch instead of uh, centimeters, and I, I, that came up like once. And then, um, I, I don't know, I, every once in a while, oh, and then temperature you mentioned Fahrenheit once, I think, and then the rest of the time it was all Celsius. And so, I don't know, he's on the cusp or he's trying to help or, you know, help you. But, yeah, with the, the subtitles thing, I, I appreciated the subtitles. Well, and I think there was once when the subtitles kind of was a little bit of a correction of what he said with his out loud voice. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a little more specific something about, I can't remember what it was. It, it kind of trimmed out some of the fat, some of, like he had ex, when he had ex, excess verbiage sometimes. He did use the word chickens instead of chooks. I think Australians generally call chickens chooks. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, now um, on on to the analysis of the uh, of the video. Um, you you gave a, a a certain kind of editorial comment of sorts <laughs> a, a couple <laughs> of different times in the movie. Darn it! Anyway, uh, I have issues. What? <laughs> Not, not so much actually, the movie. I, actually, at the, at the points where you fell asleep, I was thinking that they were <laughs> that those points were slow and boring and not of great value. This is this is getting embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I think it's a good because 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 you're too nice of a person <laughs> to say the things that I say, and so your subconscious comes in and makes the commentary. <laughs> And then I'm too rude to let you get away with it. <laughs> oh darn! So uh, uh, I pointed out, um, but for the first five or ten minutes, I mean, there was one point in time about ten minutes in where I turned to you, and I said, "This is fucking awesome." And so I'm thinking, this video could be, you know, right up there with Seth Poulter's videos. You know, it's like it could be that good. I'm, I'm, I'm just. All of a sudden, I'm feeling really excited about this video. Like, right. wow, really making the message easy to digest. This is this is the show you gotta tell. I gotta go out and tell people, everybody, go get this show. You gotta see it because the intro really did a wonderful job of talking about you need you need the the soil diversity. You need the soil activity. You know, dead soils come from inappropriate practices, alive, rich, vibrant, fertile soils come from the right kind of practices, and there are all these wonderful pictures of polyculture and mulch soils and no-till soils, and um, and then he started talking about composting. <laughs> it was it was making the point so well. It's like uh, they, they had uh, this amazing imagery. Uh-huh. So, like, the, the visual element was just... <gasps> Wow, and and so it's like wow, it's, it's like they pulled out all the stops to really make a video that was going to change the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, I should have seen this the day it came out. I should have, you know, what have I been doing? I've been I've been wasting so much time. 
Um, and then, and then, yeah, he starts talking about composting. <laughs> well, and I think I think he's brilliant with his composting. He's he did have that um, a wonderful several wonderful segments in there on how anybody can compost and how easy it can be and all the benefits and what you can do. Right, and i got to stop you because this is the part that you slept through. <laughs> and and <laughs> I my analysis is different than yours, which okay. you slept through. <laughs> um, and so <clears throat> now, now, now for the analysis of the person who stayed awake. <laughs> okay, fine. Bye. Now, wait, did, did you hear Helen and I talk about composting in our podcast? Did you listen to that podcast? Not yet. I'm okay. behind right. on podcasts. So, um, Jeff Lawton, in the movie, he says that he has made literally over 1,000 compost piles. And and so, okay. It's, now, he's saying, look how easy this is. And then and then basically, it's it's like he's... He's building a compost pile, which is kind of like uh, almost to the point of what Helen Antow does. But, but um, he um, he's, he's he made what I believe to be a, a high quality compost pile. I mean, he's trying to make a high quality compost. Right. And um, there, there's uh, several things that I don't agree with. While I do agree that he was making a high com- high quality compost, uh, this comes back to the uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I think Helen. Because uh, there's a lot of things that he said that I don't agree with, but okay. but and, and I think Helen would not agree with either. Okay. And I and I think that based on this this brief, although it seemed to last for hours, it was only like about 20 minutes, I think, maybe a half an hour of of talking about. It. And now I'm turning my compost, and uh, now I'm you know so it's like. I'm going to, based on my that that little bit of analysis, of what he said there. I'm going to say that I think I think Helen's knowledge is very superior. Interesting. Okay. And and um, I'm uh, uh, and then I'm I think that he made a compost pile that is good, um, and I think that um, uh, for a lot of people. You don't need to make it, it doesn't require that much complexity to it. I mean, he was making a higher quality compost, and he well, did have a simple recipe for a higher quality compost. Well, and wasn't part of his goal there to have it be the quickest possible compost? This was an 18 day compost. Right. He wanted, so I could see yeah. where, because now my, my impression is that he gets called out all over the world to go and. Um, Lotnify uh, his, you know, Lotnify the uh, a patch of land, and I can see him showing up, and it's like, okay, I'm here for 21 days, and um, and so we've got a lot of work to do, we've got a lot of things to get done, and you know, my initial analysis is is that we need to take all of this organic matter here, convert it into a high quality compost, where we build up, you know, the right kinds of organisms and that kind of a thing. You know, because you know this this part of the soil over here has gotten to be crappy, and that's crappy, and we're gonna you know do high, so you know, th- and we're gonna do a compost tea before I go because we want it to be green and lush and awesome before I go. <clears throat> All right, so um, I I could see that he's decided that to do this because he's got enough, you know, maybe he's got a, a dozen helpers or something like that, and and so it's like okay, high quality. Getting a lot of high-quality compost done before he goes is an important step. Okay, so um, uh, he turned it a lot. I think he, he was turning it every other day um, for so many days. And at first he let it sit for four days, um, and then he was turning it a lot. Wow, what a lot of work. Um, but yeah, he kept he, saying this was simple. Right. He thought it was only only four hours over 18 days is what his assessment was. Only four, oh, like only four hours of total time spent. Over eight, yeah, over 18 days is what he said. Um, but it did, you know, turning a pile every other day is pretty intensive. Yeah, and it, and it seems like, you know, and granted you get um, uh, a fair amount of fertilizer out of it and things of that nature, but to, my impression is, is that most people, <clears throat> I mean, he started off and he had all of these materials on hand ready to go and I think that a lot of other people are going to have either different materials or not as many materials. I mean, the more diverse your material base is, the better your compost is going to be 
it is true. However, as I did with, with Helen and, and the podcast, it's like, you know what? Uh, you can take any organic material you've got, just make a pile out back as you get the materials, and then if it starts to smell, throw more carbony materials on it. The end. That's the whole recipe that you need. And, and people don't need to make it more complicated than that. Well, uh, I, the quality won't be as high, and you, the results won't be as fast. But that's simpler. It is. I, I do think talking about the carbon to nitrogen ratio or the you know dry brown straw type stuff to the manure stuff, the 25 to 1 ratio, and showing he had a little illustration of layers of manure between much thicker layers of brown stuff, layers of manure, and, you know, I, I think that little visual helps, and, and talking about the ratio, you know, because what he was going is for the optimum heat and the optimum conversion so that all these beneficial microbes would be in there and all of that, and he said compost don't have weeds. And I thought that was an interesting comment, too. But I suppose if, you know, cooking it hot enough uh, kills a lot of the weed seeds. True, especially if you do like he was doing where you're trying right. to take the stuff on the outside and make it the inside right. on the next right. round. That, that's true. Um, and and uh, <clears throat> I, I thought that he had a way of making a compost. And... Um, and for a lot of people, I mean, when he goes and he says, and it's and it's so simple, then for a lot of people, they're going to see it. And they're going to think, um, man, that seems really complicated. And they're going to be like, okay, how much cow manure do I use versus duck manure versus, you know, goat manure? And it's kind of like, oh, I don't, oh, I don't have goats. I guess I have to go out and get a goat in order to be able to make compost. Well, he said, he said, manure is manure. It didn't matter. He even had hue manure. He had hue manure. Um, he he he. There are things that he said, and then he contradicted himself. It's like I'm trying to think of like the kinds of questions that I get from people when when trying to convey this information. And I basically I'm I'm imagining these people seeing this video and getting confused. And and um and so I kind of feel like what I want to do is I want to just what I wanted to say. There's a richer set out there. Further, you know, the other thing is is that he's got some acres there. I'm not sure how many acres he's working on for that particular spot. It sounds like it is his place. Uh-huh. Um, but the, for the systems that I came up with, I ended up not making any compost. Well, and that's what I've heard you talk about repeatedly, you know, that compost is work. Uh, you know, let the animals circulate around and just distribute fertilizer. Uh, you know, you shouldn't have to be hauling and, Pile, making piles and turning piles. And, and even uh, one of the posters out on Permies, Brenda Groth, she talked about taking some of her kitchen scraps and just burying them directly out in her different places in her garden. And it was, um, you know, it wasn't a pile. It wasn't something that had to be turned or maintained. And it wasn't something that had to be mixed at a certain ratio. And it's not something that would have to be carted one place, piled up, and then distributed. And so that was one of my first thoughts hearing you and hearing other conversations on permies.com was, okay, he had to make, he had all these separate piles. And, of course, part of that might have been for the benefit of the movie. But still, he had a pile of human manure, a pile of cow manure, a pile of a bucket of duck manure, a bucket of chicken manure. And then he had his pile of his straw and his other shredded brown stuff. And all of that had to be shoveled and carted from somewhere. And and those animals could have been in a pen or a barn long enough to where they had manure built up somewhere where it had to be shoveled out of. And that's con- contrary to a lot of other methods. Right. It's contrary to a lot of my methods. Yeah. Um, the other thing was they said the human manure had aged for four months, which I think is not long enough. And even after human manure has aged as long as it needs to age, I am not comfortable with mixing it in with something I'm going to use on food, um, uh, and I'm. But that's you know maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm a screwball, but um, you know I I kind of feel like uh, it's important to be nervous about your poop, and and um, I don't. I'm not convinced that we know enough about what's happening there to to be certain it's safe. And granted, a lot of cultures. Uh, uh, do that, 
and and use it on their food. And um, uh, there's well, there's plenty of examples where people have done it and not died. And yet, I'm not seeking avoiding death as much as I'm seeking superior health. And I'm thinking, you know what? I want to take the humanure and I want to put it on trees and shrubs that are not edibles, that are not things I intend to use as an edible in any way. I intend to put it in areas where um, uh, stuff will take it up quickly and thoroughly and completely so it won't find its way back into my groundwater. Um, I'm, I'm looking for systems that are very different from what we saw in this video. Right. Right. I, I just had the impression that um, while he was trying to have systems that fed systems that fed systems, there was a lot of human labor in in getting those systems to feed each other. Yeah, I agree. I I mean, I was uh, thinking a lot about um, Holzer's systems as a comparative. So at the, at the beginning of the video, I was just awed. I thought, yeah. this is so good. This is going to be so awesome. Yeah. And then we got into this bit about composting, which went on for a very long time, and I felt way too much time was spent talking about this compost pile. Right. Well, not only the compost pile. He did talk about the Jean Payne method. It was funny how they spelled that in the subtitle. Um, right. And... Um, so the appropriate spelling is J-E-A-N-P-A-I-N. That, that's my understanding of how it's spelled correctly. And he was, and, and so anyway, they're spelling it like John, J-O-H-N, and then Payne, P-A-N-E. Right. Um, so I, whoever's editing the movie might not know, and they cobbled yeah. it together and made do, and it was like, oh, good enough. Yeah. I mean, the guy's from France. You know? <laughs> right, right. Sean We're going to spell it different anyway. Right. <laughs> Right, so we talked about you know he, you, heating from compost piles, and um, he he loved the idea of an inoculum. You know, he just all he spoke repeatedly about all the beneficial critters in the soil, and and went into details about how they exchange the minerals with the starches in the plants, and and that just makes the plants that much healthier and. And so the compost is going to inoculate your soil with more of those critters. Um, and then he went on, you know, besides Sean Payne, he went on to talk about um, um, other, you know, vermicompost, which he called worm composting, and mm -hmm. um, and sheet mulching. He went into a pretty detailed. Um, segment on sheet mulching and how that's beneficial for the soil. And he did talk about um, creating beds where you don't walk on the beds or just wide enough to reach to the center. And, you know, a couple other things that are pretty commonly talked about in, in some permaculture circles. So You're just trying to impress upon me that you were awake for those parts. <laughs> well, and and I I'm also <laughs> thinking, you know, isn't, Jeff Lawton, a permaculture celebrity, and isn't there, you know... I, I kind of get the feeling that Bill Mollison is saying, you know, um, that, that like he's kind of handing the crown to Jeff Lawton. And so he's he's supposed to be our, our new fearless leader. Um, but, you know, uh, I'm not sure if there's anything official along those lines or anything like that. But, uh, um, but yeah, Jeff Lawton's got... Uh, um, if nothing else, the, the the thing that he did in Jordan is kick-ass. And I'm wondering if, like, out of this stack, we have another video over there. It's another Jeff Lawton video to watch. I think he has others, and I wonder if any of those is going to be, like, anything better than what we can find now on, on YouTube about the work he did in Jordan. And so, um, no doubt, I'm in a position of saying, you know, Jeff Lawton has, has earned high praise. And at the same time, I'm obnoxious and arrogant enough to pick away at this video that he made that has the the great Jeff Lawton in it. And so, um, so here I, I took a I took a page of notes. Yep. And at first, I thought that the things I were going to pick at were going to be so trivial. So I, I wrote down the very beginning when there's and it's that really awesome part. He was trying to say that you know the and the, agri the, the the conventional ag folks pay attention to only NPK. And I know that that's not true. I talked to lots of conventional ag folks, and they are very concerned 
with many of the micronutrients. Now, of course, they tend to not be too terribly concerned about micronutrients that have not been presented to them by the chem ag folks. And so, um, uh, but there are a lot. I mean, there's a, probably a good list of 20 things that they do pay attention to. Although um, a lot of the micronutrients, um, like boron, they might only pay attention to it once every five years as opposed to, you know, several times a year every year. Um, you know, but whereas nitrogen, they're like focusing on the nitrogen throughout the year. P and K, they usually focus on uh, once or twice a year. Um, so, and then, you know, all the, all the other stuff, the, the, the calcium, the calcium they'll focus on maybe a little bit more depending on whether or not their soil is kind of acidic. Um, but anyway, every, every, and it also depends, they'll do soil tests. The, um, I, I, I know for a fact that uh, most conventional ag folks, especially those who, who till, um, will do soil tests regularly to, to see what they need to add. Uh, in order to get a, a, an optimum crop. They're, they're very focused on optimizing their crop. And so at some point he said they're only caring about NPK. I don't agree with that. And um, I, I do think that, that a lot of the stuff that he's conveying is very good, and that's the stuff that they don't seem to be aware of. They, when you say, uh, you know, he didn't say this, but I, I say it all the time, every time you till, you lose 30% of your organic matter. And um, he had a different way of going about saying it. But, I mean, really, that's the bottom line. It, yeah. You know, you go in there and you till and you till and you till. And a lot of these places, they'll go in there and they'll, they'll plow twice and then they'll disc it and then they'll run the vibershank on it and then they'll, um, uh, you know, do a variety of things to help smooth the soil out more. And, um, uh, and so then they, they're going to have a big release. Now, he was saying that, when you till it, it kills all the microorganisms in there, and basically the nutrition is the dead, so the, the dead bodies of all those little microorganisms. And while that's true, I don't believe that's the whole truth. I, I think that it's, it's far more complicated. It's simplified. It's simplified version right. of it. I mean, I do think that there's also some mineral release that comes with actual friction in the tilling, um, and so there's going to be some of that, but a lot of it is indeed. You know, now all that the stuff that was, the, yeah, the die-off. Yeah, and, and he had a nice little graphic, little animated sequence showing that, that you have all this, you know, growth there, you raise all that growth, plant the crops. First year is going to be awesome, but, in, but unless you're replenishing, you're going to get diminished, diminished returns. Right, and, the, and for conventional ag, the replenish is going to be petroleum-based fertilizers. Right. So, um, uh, Anyway, um, <clears throat> I'm going to try and um, uh, go over my notes here real quick. And so I'm looking at the uh, – well, one of the things is that during the compost recipes part, um, where he's talking about the composting stuff, he was putting out a, a long carbon chain. And when he said 25 to 1 for a ratio, I mean, um, he was it, was – it was a little bit confusing to me I, because um, – it seemed like the graphics were showing 25 parts of carbonaceous stuff to one part of nitrogeny stuff. And your, so your nitrogeny stuff is going to be your manures, your uh, um, green, green manures. materials, um, you know, uh, kitchen scraps, uh, things of that nature. And your carbony-like stuff is going to typically be um, straw, sawdust, um, uh, you know. Uh, Branches and twigs, uh, dried grass, uh, um, right. things, things like that. That's going to be your carbony kind of stuff. And um, basically, when, when shooting for the optimal compost, um, a lot of folks shoot for a 30 to 1 ratio, where it's 30 parts of carbon to one part nitrogen. But that's like, that's a molecular thing. That's like, you know, uh, 30 carbon atoms to one nitrogen atom. And um, whereas, like, uh, uh, you know, sawdust is going to be like 300 to 1, so it's like 10 times more carbony than you want. Um, and then um, certain dried leaves and things are going to be more like uh, 80 to 1, um, so, you know, three or four times more carbony. Um, and then your um, uh, certain manures are going to have a carbon to nitrogen ratio of 7 to 1, so they still have seven times more carbon than nitrogen, but it's um, 
you know, like uh, four times less than the 30 to 1 you're looking for. So that would explain why the layers of carbon to manure look like about 6 to 1 or 5 to 1 instead of 25 to 1. Does that make sense? Well, some of the images I thought looked like 25 to 1. Like oh. It looked like there was 25 times more carbony stuff than manure-y stuff. Okay. And I, I was looking at that kind of thing, and, well, Jeff Lawton said 25 to 1, and I think I know what he means, but then the people who made the graphics made the wrong graphic. Ah. That's my guess. So maybe he didn't do the layers as with the manure as wide apart as they showed in the graph. Right, as as carbon intensive. Okay. You know, and so uh, I think I I think that the graphic was too carbon intensive. Oh, that's that's an interesting clarification. So it, I mean, it's going to depend on what <clears throat> it's going to be depend depend on how carbony your carbons are, mm -hmm. and how nitrogeny your nitrogens are. You know, so um, it depends, it depends, it depends. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> all right. Uh, one of the things he said was as, as, as toxic stuff becomes inert, so he had this graphic, this little cartoon, showing a carbon chain and then stuff sticking all over the carbon chain. And then he had an, an image of, like, here comes a toxic thing, and then it gets tucked in there, and then it becomes inert. And I'm thinking, nah, -uh. <laughs> no, no. It doesn't become inert. Um, <clears throat> if if you have some kind of toxic gick that breaks down in compost to to like you know other little bits and bobs, then that can become inert. But you know the reason why so many composting organizations have gone out of business has to do with the persistent herbicides like aminopyrrolid, clopyrrolid, uh, picloram, etc. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I think it's important to like not overlook that. I mean, there's a variety of things that can pass through an animal and then pass through a composting process and still be horribly toxic. And, you know, I would much rather start off with exceptionally clean materials um, and that doesn't have that, you know. And, and I, I, think it's, I think it's critically important to be aware of it and to be savvy of it and don't – this is one of the reasons why I think the simplest, easiest thing to do is don't bring any materials onto your farm, you know, because you just, it's just so hard anymore to be sure. And and now the, the taint has spread around so much that it's, it's in so, it's in damn near everything. Well, he was also showing some piles of woody debris, and he pulled back one and showed all the mycelium, mycelium that had just started going in the woody, pile of woody debris. And right. I... I could imagine that something that's more mycelium intensive could neutralize a toxin better than a typical compost. Typical compost, especially one you're turning every other day, isn't going to be mycelium intensive. I wouldn't think. Right, because you're going to be breaking it up yeah. so often and, and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, one of the things that he said that kind of struck me is like that's kind of contradictory, um, and I was having a hard time coming up with a way to make it all make sense. And that is that he doesn't like to put his compost piles inside of any kind of container because he wants to make sure the compost pile gets air, and then he threw a tarp on it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm thinking, well, okay, I guess you could, you could throw a tarp on it in such a way that air can circulate under the tarp. And he was expressing he was putting the tarp on there because he didn't want rain to get it too wet. Too wet, yeah. And his tarps did have holes. I mean, he had holes right in the top of them a little bit to put the thermometer through. You know, he was showing off the heat of the piles. So I, 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 I think it's great to not put them in a container. Some people like to use pallets, and they'll use enough pallets to make a little bin or something like that. And, and I, I did that long, long ago. And now, uh, if I ever do any compost, it's just just a plain old pile. Um, although, you know, and I should probably explain that on, on the, the systems that I do now, I don't have a compost pile. And um, uh, I like the idea that um, all of my uh, animal structures are portable, so I'm constantly moving them around. So rather than scooping them out and then doing something with the manure, I just move the shelter. And I move it often enough so that it doesn't, so that the manures don't pile up enough in one spot. And then uh, everything, all the kitchen scraps, <clears throat> go to chickens or pigs. 
and um, you know, there, you, I just end up with nothing to make a compost pile out of. Yeah, and I, I think that's one thing he didn't really talk about, but that he demonstrated. He wasn't putting veggie scraps, I don't think, in his compost piles, but he did put veggie scraps in the worm, worm compost, and um, I think that's that's something that you know we've also talked about out at Permies is is um, a lot of people use more of an enclosed worm bin for their veggie scraps. This is for people who don't have chickens or pigs to feed their kitchen right. scraps to. They use the worm bins um, for the veggie scraps because they have less of a rodent problem if it's in an enclosed container like you usually have for a worm bin. Then if you're putting vegetable scraps in a compost pile, you generally get rodents in there after the veggie scraps. So um, you went on. <clears throat> the next The next phase of compost stuff was the hot water thing, and so I'm gonna, you know, I've got that little video out of, of uh, Brian Kirkliet's little compost pile where he got 500 hot showers, and so mm -hmm. the movie kind of contains something like like that. Although yep. uh, it seemed like the amount of pipe that they were using was like five times more or ten times more. I can't remember exactly what he said, but I was like, wow, you don't need that much pipe, dude. <laughs> you know. Um, <clears throat> But uh, uh, they included mention of it, which I thought was... Yeah, they nice. even had some Jean Payne pictures right. of, of his stuff, too, and yeah. heating a house with a compost pile. Right, uh -huh. right. Um, and uh, and we've got a big, long thread out at Permies of talking about Jean Payne's techniques. Um, a lot of amazing stuff. And, of course, Jean Payne not only heated his home with the compost pile and, and they had hot water uh, to last a year, um, and, but he also capped it and was able to capture uh, the methane and use it as a cooking fuel. And uh, he also ran his truck off of it. You know, speaking of time frame with the hot water and things like that, that's something else that Jeff Lawton really liked pointing out about the compost is he really had all these calculations of you only need this size of pile and you can have enough fertilizer to grow food for a person for a year. You know, he had he had all these calculations, and I thought, well, you know, it seemed a little a little different because I thought, well, you know, depends on your soil and what you're growing and a lot of things like that. But he he was really convinced, you know, and he, even in talking about Sean Payne, he said, yeah, so he had this compost pile that he could grow food off of for a year as well. So a lot of his thinking in his head is, okay, how can I provide food for how many people per year, right. and what kind of inputs do I need for that? So he, that was a big part of his focus, it seemed like. See, now, I like the idea of getting to the point that you don't need to provide any inputs. That, you know, if yeah. you do permaculture right, then after a certain amount of time, maybe seven years, you should only need to harvest to feed that one person, and you shouldn't need to add any inputs whatsoever. You shouldn't need to irrigate or fool with compost or compost tea and uh, um, stuff like that. Now, if you're going to try and heat your home with compost, of course, then you're going to need to, and that's part of the John, John Payne process, which I didn't really care for, is it's like, now let's bring in another dump truckload of wood chips. Now let's add another truckload of manure. And, uh, you know, and it's kind of like they had to pile all that up. And it's like, uh, I was kind of thinking, wow, imagine having to do that every year, you know, because it lasts a year. And, of course, granted, at the end of the year, then you've got all this great compost, but now you've got to move it, too. Right. Yeah, oh, you've got all this compost, but you've got to move the compost out to some place, and then you've got to build a whole new compost pile again using this enormous pile of stuff. Well, some Although I kind of like the idea of using wood chips, and you get your manures and some soils and some good starter uh, compost inoculant in there, and then you can pee on the pile. And I would think that, that if you can have urine diversion inside of your home and then divert the urine to the pile, that, like, suddenly your urine becomes a massive source for heating your home <laughs> and running your car, <laughs> you know, all this stuff. Well, and I, I think it's, it's definitely an option for someone who has more time and a stronger back than they have money, you know. I mean, if their uh, heating bills in some areas are atrocious. and um, 
true. And 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 you're limited in in the type of heat you have in some homes. So it could be quite the solution for some areas. Could be. Could be. Um, <clears throat> he then took us on a bit of a tour of his gardens, and um, there were a lot of things that kind of bugged me about his gardens, but I think his climate is very different from most of the people that I visit with. Now, I'm going to have to admit, he's probably, I mean, he's in Australia, so it's probably very hot there, probably. I'm just guessing. And and then a lot of his work is done in extremely arid, hot, hot places. So he's probably uh, a thousand times more savvy at hot than I am. And, um, and I'm going to guess that, you know, when it comes to... Uh, horticulture in Montana or even in the Puget Sound area, I might have a little bit more knowledge than, than him, maybe, possibly. Um, but basically, he was making all of his garden beds on contour, which is like the opposite of what I would do. Hmm. And it's the opposite of what SEP does. Hmm. And, and so I, I, I don't do what SEP does either, um, which SEP would tell probably a lot catastrophe. Um, <laughs> But uh, uh, for me, a big part of it is, is it's like, okay, here in, in Montana, we've got a 90-day growing season. And if you do things just right, you can squeeze out an extra month on either end of the season. So you go from 90 days to 150 days. Yay, team. So a part of that is, is to be thinking about, you know, frost and how cold air moves. And if you've got cold air coming down the hill, you want it to go right on by and not hang out at your house. But if you build your raised beds on contour, that's going to be like holding all that cold air. It's going to, it's going to slow it down. And then his raised beds, while I really like the technique that he uses to make raised beds, where you dig down at the paths and then you slap that up where you want the raised beds to be, um, I thought his raised beds were like wimpy sized. Like they were like eight inches tall. Yeah, they weren't. They weren't very tall. And uh, I see you wrote this down too. They weren't very diverse. A lot of his plantings. Yeah, it it seemed to me like companion planting, uh-huh. as opposed to um, polyculture. Uh-huh. So it, it looked like on each bed, which was the appropriate width, you know, raised beds of that type, to have to be four feet wide. And he talked about them being four feet wide a lot. Um, although he didn't say four feet wide, but you could, they looked four feet wide, and it was he called it like double reach, the, the ability to reach in. and Reach into the middle from each side. The normal is four feet. Either side. Some, I've, I've tried five feet a couple of times, and it's just a little too much when you go to harvest and, and do anything you know, with the, the bed. So four feet is, is the size. Um, and uh, uh, it looked like he had four rows in these beds and of, of it's like you still have a row garden in it but it's four different rows of things growing in each bed and I was kind of thinking um, that that seemed like kind of a weak polyculture really uh, not, not a weak polyculture but a, but a, but a weak companion planting not even, he didn't even talk about companion planting he, said, he used the word polyculture and as I was looking at it and I was kind of thinking Wow, I'm not, I'm not really seeing that. I I think that's a common thing that people in permaculture do. They they have their annual vegetables that they still grow in very traditional ways, which is companion planting or in rows or square foot gardening methods, and then they try and establish their more long-term food forest area that's more polyculture. And he did have a real brief, brief example of getting the chickens to eat under his fruit trees in his in his more food forest area, where he had a guava and things like that indicating a pretty warm growing climate. Right. So, right. We don't grow guava. We don't guava. grow guavas here. Yeah. So, um, you know, and it looked like a little more jungle-esque where where the, his fruit trees were. So I think he was doing more polyculture there, but was still doing more production-style veggies um, so that they were less diverse. And and I'm not saying that in defense. I'm just saying it seems like a lot of people do that, and, and it's something we've talked about before and that we've even talked about at the Bullocks, 
that even the Bullock brothers had been criticized by some people saying, you know, oh, that's not permaculture because your vegetables aren't mixed up enough, you know. Right, and then their response to that is, is like, that's the intern's bed. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the interns well, came in as yeah. brand new interns, and the first thing they did is, it's like, okay, interns, you got to grow your own food. The first thing they did is plant everything in rows because that's what they're used to. So, but I didn't. Apparently, the beds from for the Bullock brothers themselves were not part of the tour, and so that so so the, you know that would have been interesting to see. But they do have a lot of fruit trees, and they do a lot of guild stuff. Right, fruit trees. Right, lots. So, um, uh, and so there's and they do have a lot of diversity in perennials, and then they've got well anyway. The, the Bullock brothers do have a lot of very interesting things going on. And I, I just, I would like to see the Bullock Brothers do something where wherever their tour goes, that it does show more polyculture examples. And, and I'd like them to, to raise their chickens the way I want them to, not the way they want to. <laughs> right. Well, even even Jeff Lawton was a little guilty of some of that, it looked like. You know, a lot of pants. You know, pens where the manure was gathering up, where his chickens were, and and even yeah. where his ducks and geese were. But he, you know, and then he had this this whole little irrigation tap thing connected to the duck and geese pond that yeah. he had this manure water uh, uh, available via tap down by his on contour vegetable gardens. Right, which was in many ways clever. Um, I, I have to kind of wonder if it was, like, um, worth whatever. I mean, it, it seemed kind of gadgety and kind of like, uh, look what I made, and now you can do this. And I'm and I'm kind of thinking to myself, dude, you should be, like, doing things in such a way that you don't need to irrigate it at all. You know, um, <laughs> it's like, so he's caught a system where he's still, he's still irrigating it, um, which kind of... Uh, I, I don't know. I want him to do other things, and it's like uh, maybe he's got a reason for it that I can't think of. But um, hell, if Seth can get a system set up that doesn't require irrigation in a place that gets only three inches of rain a year, because wherever Jeff Lawton is, it looks lush enough outside of his property that he's probably getting a little bit more moisture than it. So it's like not, not a total desert, right? But you know, maybe there's there's a bigger story there that we're that that. It, didn't come through in this video. Yeah, I don't know. Um, he used, uh, when, when he went out and he made his raised beds, or he made at least one of them, he used newspaper and cardboard, which, um, uh, so clearly he's a guy that's okay with that. And, and the thing the, is... The sheet mulching, and he even yeah. had old books and stuff. He said, hey, this looks like garbage, but it's a garden bed, you know, and yeah. and he was you know, really happy with doing that. And Mollison does that too. And, and in fact, um, uh, Jeff was talking about laying down there. And I think in one of Mollison's old videos, he kind of lays out a bunch of mulch and stuff, and then he lays down right there and like he's going to take a nap or whatever. And, and, and Lawton kind of alludes to that. And he says, but I'm not going to lay on this because that would compact the soil. And um, uh, I know that Mollison supports using... Uh, cardboard and newspaper. I know Sepp Holter supports using cardboard and newspaper. Clearly, now we know that Jeff Lawton supports using cardboard and newspaper. Um, Paul Stamets supports using cardboard and newspaper. I don't. I'm, I am like of this tiny minority, and, and maybe I am the lesser permaculturalist because of it, and I'm okay with that. Um, there's just stuff in the cardboard, in the newspaper, as well as on the cardboard and on the newspaper, on the books. He was using junk mail, too, on all of those things that do not meet my quality criteria. And granted, I'm, I'm shooting for a higher level, in my opinion, than most folks. Well, you know, when I, you and I first talked about that and you talked about the toxins in the paper, I tried to do a little research because I thought, well, wait a minute, Wood has natural lignans in it that should allow you to take a wood pulp and create a paper out of it without adding chemicals. And so I tried doing some research, and I thought, you know, because those lignans should be enough. And um, the little bit of research I did, it looked like um, in order to have 
printable paper, smooth enough printable paper, they add glues and other chemically stuff so that you have this smooth stuff that will be fed through a computer printer, that will be fed through the industrial printers that create the newspapers and magazines and things like that. And so you have, it's not just the ink. It's, you know, because people say now, oh, the ink's fine, it's soy-based. But it's not. There's still lead in some of the inks, and there's still um, toxic glues, chemical-based glues, in the paper so that it's printable. So with any kind of um, magazine paper, um, and and um, most book papers, then um, uh, yeah, they're going to add other goops to to it uh, above and beyond uh, um, what they would add in newspaper and cardboard. In newspaper and cardboard, it is possible for them to create a paper that contains no extra chemicals. It's purely wood. I mean, but the thing is, is that that process is timely and therefore expensive and generally not done. Um, and so what they end up doing is, is that um, uh, they'll use chemicals in it, not necessarily to remain inside of the paper in order to be able to be a glue to hold together, but they'll use chemicals in it to help you know, uh, break the lignans into something that's a smoother paper. Uh-huh. And so it's like faster than the, than the purely mechanical process. Okay. So um, uh, I know that Paul Stamets now has a line of boxes you can buy that have seeds embedded in it. So the idea is that when you're all done with the box, you can put the box outside on the ground, and then up pops a little garden. Um, I hope that the cardboard that's used there is the type of cardboard where um, it's uh, going to uh, use the the purely mechanical process, so it's not using any chemicals in it. and uh, on top of that, then, the, then there's the, for cardboard, there's, the, there's actual glues that are added in order to be able to get it to do that corrugated thing. Right. And it's then like plus three layers glued together to make the corrugated thing. Plus, the, the paper itself is, you know, you actually need, like, several layers of paper. Oh, and yeah. so you have to glue those together, too. Yeah. So, um, uh, and then usually that's uh, made out of cornstarch. Um, but then uh, uh, typically it's not... You know, it's like most of it. It's like 93% cornstarch, uh, probably a GMO-based cornstarch, uh, probably a GMO-based cornstarch where a lot of pesticides were used, um, uh, including herbicides and whatnot. Um, so there's, you know, and you, how much of those herbicides do you really want to have in your uh, garden? But on top of that, uh, the remaining 7% is not cornstarch. And so, and of course, uh, there's all kinds of things that it could be, but it's usually something to help the glue, the, the cornstarch be a better glue. And um, so uh, uh, some chemicals can be better than others, but still it's like um, not something where you can be certain of which chemical was used in these. So it, it gets to be into this very iffy space. Then we go into the whole space of like what's on the paper, on the cardboard, the tapes that are going to be on the boxes, on the, on the cardboard, as well as uh, all of the different kinds of um, uh, inks that could be used and stuff that you've kind of covered a little bit already. So uh, Jeff Lawton, I mean, granted, you can it can work. You'll see the uh, uh, stuff come up. And it's like, oh, okay, I, I used all the cardboard and put all the cardboard out there, and all the plants came up and I ate them and they tasted lovely. Therefore, I don't know, some people will come to the conclusion that cardboard is awesome and great. I'm, I am not comfortable with it. And then, of course, you know, we've told the tale before, have we not, um, of uh, visiting a garden in the Puget Sound yes. area yes. where it's like uh, that the tree is all sick and we dig down, and and there's a layer of newspapers, and the woman there was like, well, yeah, I uh, I put these newspapers down five years ago, and they kill all the weeds, and it worked great. It killed all the weeds. And, uh, um, and of course, you know, she thought it was going to decompose, but it didn't. Right. Lots of it had petrified into an in- impermeable layer, really, so that water couldn't even get through. A, yeah, a fascinating thing yeah. that it was an impermeable layer, yeah. to be sure. Yeah. But an impermeable layer it was. You could still read the newspaper. Right, right, five years later. 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, what I wanted to mention is I really respect people who are using um, cardboard and paper in their gardens and recycling it because they don't want it to go in the waste stream and they want to find a way to repurpose any waste that they create. They want to personal, take personal responsibility for any waste they create and they want to find a way to repurpose it in their own property and in their own home systems. So I respect those efforts. You know, for me, I, you know, I agree with you on the chemicals with it. I'd much rather um, I have recycling services available where I live. I'd much rather send that off to be recycled and made into a paper product again rather than put it in my compost or in my garden. Right. It's it's a you know, when you start traveling that path, that does get a little harder. There's yeah. a little harder. Yeah. But I would I would still I, I'm I'm shooting for something that is uh, I, I want something that's closer to nature for the quality of the food that you end up with, and that means that I don't want that those chemicals to be part of the process, especially since we know that many of the persistent herbicides can, can have a half-life of like 7 to 11 years, then it's like, well, there's other chemicals that could also have a half-life that's that long, possibly even longer. And so I, I want those to, I want to minimize that in my systems. Yes. Um, after a lot of uh, boring stuff uh, in the video, and then you did some power napping, <laughs> which you, basically that was Dang a it. good, optimal use of your time. Dang it. Uh, he got into a section about weeds in this video that I thought was excellent. He made he made some really good points. In fact, I, I would I, I, it would be neat if he could take these two segments, the the, the the first few minutes before the composting, and then later the weeds section, and and then get those up on YouTube where everybody can can see them. I mean, I totally understand if he doesn't, you know, but. Uh, uh, that would be of such huge, awesome value. Um, uh, but in the weed section, he uh, he talked about like, well, if you go and you compact the hell out of the soil, then what comes back are a bunch of weeds that you know are not only can they deal with compacted soil, but it's like their whole mission in life is nature's way of decompacting the soil. And then um, and then if you go and you like till the hell out of the soil, you just till it, till it, till it, till it, till it. Then you've got a whole bunch of weeds that are coming in that um, are uh, uh, creating a web. They're kind of like they have this very webby kind of uh, root system that's trying to help bring all these pieces back together. And uh, on a lot of legumes, because now the soil is, is deficient of nitrogen, and so they're trying to heal the land. Yeah. And so then he's talking about how to read what the weeds are telling you and how... You know, it's like the, the weeds are, are just the, the symptoms, really. They're nature's way of trying to heal. And um, if you're out there saying, damn weeds, and you're trying to get rid of them, then, I, you know, he didn't exactly say this, but I'm drawing the conclusion, I'm making the connection that, you know, this is, it, 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 the problem isn't the plant there. The problem is the person staring at it thinking that the plant needs to be eliminated. So, um his presentation was far more diplomatic and um, and awesome. I mean, it was really well done, uh, stimulating. Hard to nap through that part. <laughs> uh, I thought it was very good, very good. Uh, and and uh, um, between the very beginning of the, the, this video and the weed section, if, they, if he could have expanded on those, then uh, and made it just a half hour long video or a, or something like that. That would have been like super awesome video. Everybody needs to see this. As is, it's kind of like, uh, well, the video has up has really good parts and really you know okayish parts. And so if you you know, right. I I think more varieties of building the soil besides the compost. I mean, he went into a big section on compost tea as well that we didn't even talk about. But I, you know, and then the whole mineral thing he was doing for his cows, so which he thought also helped feed the soils via the cow right. 
Which is true. Stuff. Yeah. Um, but there was one brief segment in there where he talked about um, some kind of bean tree. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he said that by pruning the tree, uh, you know, they could survive cuts just fine. And he used the, the tree branches as mulch. Then that also created um, some root die-off, which increased the soil um, humus, humus down below, right? Do you remember that segment? I, I do remember that. I think, again, the graphic is not very well aligned with reality. Yeah. Because, like, the roots kind of moved up, and it's kind of like, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> well, well, what he meant to show is that they kind of died off at the bottom. Right. So they were now shorter roots. So I remember Dave Bainline uh, talks about doing the exact same thing, and, and – uh, he uh, back at the Bullock Brothers, they'll plant an alder tree on the like the north side of new fruit trees, and then uh, he says you go to that alder tree, which of course is a nitrogen fixing plant, and you lop off a big branch or a big chunk of the tree, and like right under that tree, every like all the grass right there will green up. Wow. It's as if there's like a matching branch that's actually a root under the surface, and we chop off this branch, the matching root died, and released and all released that. all that nitrogen and wow. nutrients. Yeah. And and so he's, he kind of says, well, whenever I want a big nitrogen boost, I go and I start lopping off branches, and then you'll see nitrogen boost under the soil. Wow. And I'm sure it's not exactly like that, but I can kind of understand how there can be a lot of correlation like that. And uh, I, I thought it was fascinating. And so I, I imagine that if Jeff Lawton did the graphics himself, he would have shown something like what Dave Bainline described. But um, Well, I think this graphic was trying to show that. But, you, you know, it wasn't that the roots shrunk. It was that they died off at the end. So. The graphic showed the roots getting smaller. <laughs> like like they, the roots actually moved up and it was the stuff at the bottom that was got all sparkly, like feeding everything around right, it. Right. And, and so it's kind of like, oh man, don't show the graphic like that. Yeah. <laughs> but it would it would have been nice to see more um, soil fertility examples like that. Like, you know, and he did talk about hairy vetch didn't he? He talked about vetches. I don't remember him talking about hairy vetch. Okay. I don't know if hairy vetch would do well there. Okay, sorry. It's too warm. Yeah. So, um, but building soil fertility in more plant-based ways or more um, right. just systems feeding systems ways, um, his was very manual inputs, compost inputs. Was his was his thing? A lot of it seemed people intensive. Mm-hmm. And and then he would do a whole bunch of work and then he would say, That was easy and I'm just kinda and it looked like a lot of work, man. <laughs> <laughs> so uh um I don't know. I well we've got one more video. We'll watch it, you know, soon and, and, and see if it uh, if it's different. The one we just watched is the newer one, so then we'll watch the older one. But um Couple of last notes here. Um, he uh, he was raising. He had chickens. He had them in a cooped up area that was all fenced in, and then it looked like he put a bunch of composty stuff in there. And the chickens are, you know, scratching that the compost to get the bugs and the worms and whatnot. And I was looking at that, thinking, I'm against that. And then he turned them loose to go play in the food forest. Right. And it's like I'm for that. Right. Right. <laughs> but uh, and and then he and then he started showing examples of him doing a paddock shift system. But he had a salatin like pen that he was moving around at some point. But then the chickens are like not in the pen; they're like out and about. So I'm not exactly sure. I mean, the one where they're out and about, that's what I'm for. And I want them to have access because because chickens are a forest animal. I want them to have lots of access to forest. And uh, and he showed them in a big paddock, and out, they're out there uh, scraping at the cow pies and stuff like that. And, but he had the cows and the chickens together, which normally people have the chickens follow the cows by three to five days, because by then the maggots have built up in the cow pies enough that it's uh, better chicken food. Um, but he had them together. He also showed a relationship between a certain kind of bird, uh, which I'd never heard of before, this kind of bird, uh, which which would sit on the cow's back, 
and if a fly came around, the bird would eat the fly, and then the the, the bird would fly down and and uh, you know get the bugs that are in the cow pies and whatnot. And so I was thinking, you know, hey, <laughs> what's the North American equivalent of that bird? Right. Maybe right. we need to get a breeding program going on or something. Right. So um, he also talked about the values of paddock shift systems, which of course are brilliant and awesome. And right. I'm so glad that he brought that up in his video. Um, uh, really, really good, solid information there. Um, yeah, he explained how beneficial it is to the grasses and how the grasses are, you know, polyculture and, and just how the cows benefit that if they're grazing in a tight herd, which it used to do due to predator pressure, but now we can mechanically do that with paddock systems. Right, and the only thing I would have liked to have been different about is paddock shift systems that he was doing with the cattle uh, is that I'd like to see the paddocks uh, always include trees. Mm. Uh, I, you know, so whereas he, he uh, like I've, I've been to these places where it's like uh, they're, they're talking about um, cattle and it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a system for, um, uh, you know, how to n not stress cattle and uh, so here's this big long thing about not stressing cattle and all the things that they did. And the cattle were like in a pen that was totally wide open and there's not a single tree or any kind of shelter. And I'm thinking, you know, I think you want, if you want to talk about de-stressing cattle, I mean, I could see the value of having non-stressed cattle. I think one of the most important ingredients is that they need to have shelter. Whether, you know, and, and all, and, and there's and plenty of it you know, so that they're not, like, fighting for it or competing with each other for it. Um, there was the mineral mix thing, which was a little odd, but he does make a good point that eventually your land will be rich enough in minerals that you really don't need to be buying mineral mix anymore or creating. He was creating his own mineral mix, which, um, um, wow, a lot of that was, he was bolder than I would be. Um, with and what the, he was putting in it. And what he was putting in it, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was he was using um, I think it was some sort of copper sulfate yeah. as a dewormer, which uh, you know I'm thinking okay well copper sulfate but I'm thinking well you know those two things it's possible to get to an amount that could be toxic but you know uh, maybe I mean that I, I had all kinds of questions about it maybe it's awesome maybe not so much I know that a lot of people uh, I know I've I was using uh, for dewormer I was using once a month. Um, uh, all the animals were taken off of their natural water sources, and the only water they had access to was um, uh, a, a water that, that had a little bit of basic H in it. This is what Salatin does. Um, and uh, um, What's basic H? It's, it's um, a surfactant. And um, uh, so... Um, it's used sometimes as like a soap, but it's it's sold by uh, an outfit called Shackley as a one of them pyramid scheme kind of things. Oh right. But um, you know, it's and I'm not. I think I read somewhere that it recently got approved for organic stuff, but I'm not sure. Maybe and that could have also just been somebody trying to sell it or something. But I do know that um, uh, Salatin uses it, and um, and 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 basically I'm sold. You know, right there, if Salatin's using it, that's a, a powerful indicator of, of its value. And I have not heard anything to suggest that it's spooky in any way, and yet there are unknowns in it, which makes me nervous, and and yet I don't have yet a better treatment, although uh, diatomaceous earth is used by a lot of folks and claim to have great success, but I, I suspect that the basic age probably works better. Um, anyway, so once a month, the first of the month, every month, everybody gets a little bit of uh, water with basic H in it, and mm -hmm. then uh, and then we go back to regular water. Um, but uh, moving moving along, uh, um, oh, that's it. That's the end of my list. Yeah, there was a lot that we covered from the movie, and I I brought up a few things that weren't on your list, despite a few snores here and there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I did better than I thought I would. I was uh, So anything else? No. I think I think that was um 
I think that was interesting, and and I haven't watched much of Jeff Lawton before, so it's it was good to see see another uh, permaculture celebrity. Yeah, yeah, I I like I I really like a lot of the stuff that Jeff Lawton's done, and in this case, a lot of the stuff that he's doing is just simply different than how I would do it. Um, and uh, um, I mean, if if the crown is being passed to him, then then obviously I must be wrong and he must be right, I suppose. But I'm going to do it wrong anyway. Um, uh, I I think a lot of it might have just been like the uh, the pictures that were shown or the way it was edited. You know, like Jeff probably went out and he did his thing, and and then somebody else took all the video, made all the images, made a movie out of it, and. Um, they made the best of it, and they probably didn't know things as well as Jeff. Otherwise, you know, Jeff might have said, "You know, you probably don't want to present it that way." So, yeah. um, uh, anyway, um, I don't know. Overall, I, I, I wanted this at the beginning. I was thinking it was going to be like one of the top movies, you know, that I would recommend. Um, and um, I think that a half-hour movie could come of it, where it could be a top movie. Um, and said it's more like there's bits out of it that I want to share that I, that I think are really good and are and are and are shareable. Um, and then there's a lot of it where it's a yawner, um, and and uh, um, which which you can't you can't say that's not true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dang it! And I know you want to because you want to be nice. You want to you want to say nice things about everybody. Um, but uh, all right, I. I think that's uh that's a kind wrap. Of, kind of a middle of the road movie, I guess. Yeah. Some ups. Yeah. Some some yawns. Yeah. Yeah. So if you like this sort of thing, come on up to the forums at permies.com where we talk about rich soil, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. <laughs>